how do you define living authentically? What does that mean to you? Mm, yeah, it's tricky because everything is touching everything. Everything is affecting everything. So I don't necessarily believe in, in blank canvases, but uh, to live authentic is to be true to oneself, right? Whatever the self is in that moment. To live authentically is to be as sovereign as possible, given that we are in these limited skin suits with these limited perspectives, right? What's uh, wrong? Yeah. It was, was, you know, they used to tell um, pregnant women that it's a good idea to smoke cigarettes for stress while you're pregnant, right? That was considered right at that time. Um, and so right and wrong is relative and just like uh, authenticity is. The question is, is are you, are, are those truly our thoughts which are informing our words and our actions and, you know, also informing our mood and the energy from which we live from. Is that yours? Right. One of the things I teach is there are four aspects of what it means to be human. We are biological beings, right? We are linguistic beings, which means we build worlds with language. We use language to describe feelings, right? Without the linguistics of door and doorknob, getting out of this room would be very challenging. But the moment I have these linguistics, it opens up worlds. Number three, we are social and historical beings mm -hmm. born into beliefs and interpretations. So we have beliefs and interpretations based on church, based on primary caregivers, based on man who molested, based on mm -hmm. X, Y, and Z. And so most people think, and the fourth one is we're quantum beings, but I'm going to go back to number three. Most people think that, that who they are is who they are. And I often remind them through my coaching, that's not who you are, it's who you became, mm -hmm. right? That is a coping strategy. That is a mechanism that you figured out how to do. You became the cheerer upper because your parents were super depressed, right? You became invisible and shy and quiet because your household was dangerous. Mm -hmm. You became an out of the way kid um, because your parents were stressed out, right? There's, we, we cope and we do it so long and we wear the mask for so long that we think that's who we are, but it's truly not. Um, and so authenticity is as the, the level of sovereignty that we can possibly have in any given moment um, mixed with beingness, right? I, I don't really think we can miss. Um, and even when we're not being authentic, it's authentic to us given our level of awareness. So it's a tricky, it's a tricky question. Um, but it is, it is my life's work. I'll tell you that much is to, to have the level of honesty that my kids have, right. To, to be as present as they are when they can't get a toy or a cookie, you know, um, I'm gonna tell you, this is not a funny story, but it kind of is. Uh, we were doing, we went to monster trucks. I took my son, my whole family to monster trucks and we were leaving early and there was a guy with his kid, his wife, and he was on crutches and he had one leg that was missing. And my son started like walking like him. And then he was like, that's weird. Where'd his leg go? And he's like screaming it <laughs> as loud as possible. Oh, oh my God. And the dude, the dude stops for a moment and he's like, it is weird, huh? And he like plays Aww. along with it. And I was like, oh my God, dude, thank you for thank that. Thank you, right? Yeah, because it can go anyway. <laughs> so good. Mm-hmm.
Yeah. I, I love the authenticity of kids because they're just so they're just, you know, kids are I, I truly believe in the concept that like everybody's born truly good. You know, some people like that, you know, I, I know that this is controversial because like you got like really fucked up people in this world, but I truly believe that we start out innately good, you know, that mm-hmm. people have good intentions, but our environment, different things in our life really shape us, including I'm a big person of epigenetics and that trauma can be passed down in our genes. And, yeah. you know, I think for a lot of people, they start to define themselves and label themselves based off their trauma. Like mm-hmm. this is, this is not what I went through. This is who I am now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we need to draw the line and be very careful that you are not your trauma. Yes, you went through it. It's not your mm-hmm. fault that you went through it, but this doesn't define who you are. This doesn't become your identity. And yes. that's where I think we have to be very careful of that. So for people that are listening and maybe they've had past trauma, maybe they've gone through breakups or maybe they're going through something and they're trying to connect with their most authentic selves. They're trying to love and accept themselves. I know this is a loaded question and this is really, it's not a one size fits all, but where does someone even start to, mm. we, we hear these things on the internet, just love yourself, mm-hmm. just love yourself. Mm-hmm. I say it. Yes. You have to put yourself first. You have to love yourself. You have to embody self-love, but what does that mean? And how does mm-hmm. somebody even begin to cultivate mm-hmm. those qualities? Yes. So I'll give you, I guess what would be considered an, an, an analogy or a metaphor. I'm not sure which one, but, um, there isn't anybody I've ever met that doesn't have trauma. So let's just, we'll just start with the baseline that everybody's experienced some level of trauma, whether it's shock trauma, developmental trauma, you know, acute trauma, there's, there's things right that, that occur in our lives, whether it's a a messed up pap smear or a sister who's the smart one and you're considered this, or, you know, your parents don't tell you they love you or your mom regretted or was, pissed that she had to breastfeed you and your body remembers the, 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 that thing, right? We all have trauma. So some of us, and I'll put myself in this, have been through a bit more than others. And which means oftentimes that our hypervigilance is a little more on point, right? We're scanning to make sure that never happens again. And in doing so, uh, sometimes we can create more drama and trauma and pain out of trying to protect ourselves from the very thing that we're creating. So the name of the game when it comes to like really uh, loving oneself and putting oneself first has to start with being regulated. And what I mean by regulated is, is if I'm in hypervigilance, which means I'm scanning for danger, I'm scanning for whether you are going to tell me you love me back or, you know, did you like that post on Instagram? And what does that mean? And you, you like women like that? Is that who you are? You're just like that kind of guy. Like the, it's the subtle ways in which I'm, I'm scanning for danger, right? If I'm in hypervigilance, that means that my amygdala has fired off and I am in fight, flight, freeze or appease. And I am dysregulated. If I'm dysregulated, that means I have less oxygen going to my brain, right? All the energy and um, certain parts of my brain have shut down and I have a bunch of energy in my thighs and in my hands so I can run or fight back. And so putting oneself first, truly loving oneself would be moving your physiology 
like literally moving, right? If I'm experiencing anything that feels like it's too much, too soon, too fast, or too little, right? I move my actual body. If I'm sitting like this, I move like this. If I'm in this room, I go to the next room. If you can't do that, regardless, we have to return to breath. The breath has to go all the way into the bottom of our belly, right? Calm, deep breaths, re-regulating ourselves. Sometimes it takes 20 minutes. Sometimes it takes four hours. And sometimes it takes four days to get back to homeostasis. And so the game, right, using that metaphor or analogy, some of us are out at sea and we can see the shore, but the waves are crazy. And we've been doggy paddling for a while, right? People try to figure out relationships while at, at, out at sea. People try to make decisions about their lives while out at sea with no life raft. What I suggest is get to solid ground. Get yourself regulated. Get yourself in your joy space, your happy space. Get yourself to neutral before you make a decision about your relationships, where you make a decision about your career, before you make a decision about who and what you think you are. Most people are so traumatized and so living from that trauma body that they're making decisions from that space that don't truly serve their higher self. So we manifest circumstances and, and, and an outward projection of how we feel internally. So when I say that, it was, you know, I think a lot of times people think, oh, like I can't manifest or like I'm not good at manifesting. It's like, no. When we really understand what manifestation really is, it's simply a process of creating in your external reality a result of what your thoughts, feelings, and beliefs. And so if you are feeling negative about yourself, if you're feeling unworthy, if you're not feeling confident, if you're feeling, um, you know, it, it, any sort of negative feeling toward yourself in some way, and that is the, the predominant feeling that you feel about yourself that manifests in the actions, right? So the thoughts that we have create the feelings that we have. The feelings drive our actions and our actions produce the results that we ultimately have in our life. So for me at that time, I mean, it's multi-layered, but it, it was, I was going to parties and, and drinking and doing the drugs and in the negative relationships, subconsciously reflecting back to me accepting the treatment that I thought I deserved. So the unworthiness that I felt was reflected in the way that that boyfriend that I allowed to be in my life treated me. I treated my body in the way that I felt about my body, which was not good, right? I treated mm -hmm. my body very poorly um, because I, I didn't want to be in my body. But I think there's so much nuance to this because I can say that now from this vantage point in which I sit as I've done this work on myself. But if someone is in the depths of their despair and in an abusive relationship, and I think I said this on Danny Morell's podcast as well, um, is I wouldn't say to someone like you created and manifested this in your entire life. When someone's in that psyche in that moment, I'm not going to tell them that you brought this on yourself. They're already in the mentality of beating themselves up. That's mm -hmm. not the point. When we understand the deeper layer and the spiritual component and really karmic cycle of all of this, we can start to have that conversation. But what I would say to someone that's going through this or in the depths of feeling unworthy right now in this moment is like, hey, like 
you've been through some shit, I'm sure, to get to this point and feel the way that you feel. And it's really valid. I mean, anybody, we, we do the best that we can with mm-hmm. what it is that we have at the time. I don't fault myself for any of those relationships or the drug abuse or any of that because I did the best I could with what I knew how at the moment. Right. And, and so I think having a lot of self-compassion and understanding for the self that is wanting to get their needs met in some way, wanting companionship, wanting, um, you know, to disassociate because it's too painful, wanting Mm -hmm. to, for me, I wanted to be noticed. I wanted someone to see that something was wrong. So I acted out like there's so many, so much of what we do. We're not doing it because we're trying to create chaos in our lives. We're doing it because we're trying to get a need met in a way that might not necessarily be, um, the the best route to go about it, but it's mm-hmm. still coming from typically a, a deep place of desire and um, needing and needing some type of need to be met. And so, yeah, I think I think I would say anybody going through that right now is just like pause for a moment, allow yourself to get quiet enough to listen to your own inner voice, because typically when we're in that state, we're bulldozing through our emotions in some capacity to not feel them. If you get quiet enough to listen, what is the thing that you need to do? Is that separate yourself from a relationship or from a relationship with a drug or with alcohol? Is it to separate something? Get Give enough space, just enough, so that you can begin to, um, to hear the inner voice that wants, wants more for you and wants the best for you, um, and then start to do one small thing differently 1% differently, 1% better, and begin to count, um, to, to give yourself, celebrate yourself for these small little shifts rather than berating yourself for all the ways that you're doing it wrong and beginning mm-hmm. to like repattern that neural pathway. And over time, that's going to grow and to expand and, and really begin to help increasing your confidence. And one thing I loved about when I was looking at your book, which is called Well Lived, Everyone, you guys got to go get this book. I'll link it for you. You share six actionable secrets to enjoying lives that are long, happy, and purpose-driven. So let's let's go over some of those. The first one you say, spend your energy wildly. What does that mean? Energy has to move. If energy isn't moving, it dies. If we have energy within us, which we do have, if we don't recognize that and we don't, we think we can uh, bank it or we can save it or we can do something and not use it, we're, we're really having trouble with what life's all about. In fact, if I, you know, I've had patients who have, um, I've told them for one reason or another that they've had, they really should go home and get some rest. And they've taken me uh, literally and gone home and gotten some rest, which meant to them they quit doing anything. In other words, if they, if they were going to rest, they, they didn't have anything to do. And they would just kind of let life go on. And by the, pretty soon they're stuck. And then what are they doing? They're doing nothing. And they come back and I have to explain to them that when I told them to, to go home and rest, that's doing something. 
It's not just cutting off all the juice and saying, I have to bag this juice and I'll get, I'll get, you know, I'll get some, I'll get it back later. Uh Uh-uh. It's like physical exercise. You know, if you don't exercise physically, uh, what are your poor muscles going to do? What are your joints going to do? What is it? What are your eyes going to do for crying out loud? Because when you exercise, all parts of your body are moving, and it's a it's a joint effort to stay alive. Uh, you, you know, either we can um, live our lives so that uh, we kind of expect when we get to be, I don't know what age, 60, something like that, to start to fade and then continue to fade. We'll just fade into whatever. Uh, I Wasn't it uh, one of uh, our forebearers in this country of ours said you, that he wanted to live his life until he died, you know? And that's mm-hmm. the way I feel about it. If I can, if I can't keep doing the things that I think are important and are exciting to me and really feed my juice, then I might just as well, you know, die. And I'm not ready to do that yet because I think that there, there's, well, for one thing, there's more life to be lived. So mm-hmm. I have a, a purpose to keep going, but one the purpose is to share the purpose with other people who may or may not have found their juice. And so it's sort of like if I have a flashlight on a dark path and I'm walking down that path and I can see as far as that path leads me one step at a time, and that's good. That's, you know, I can keep going that way. But as I'm going that way, if I'm actually looking at the path there may be a little flicker of light here or a little over there someplace and I realize that somebody else who I may not know is struggling along the path and their light is is getting kind of dim if I just shine my light over onto their light their light becomes great and they can go on and move so if we can see ourselves as all the time sharing our juice with other people, it's huge. It's not taking the flashlight and putting it in our pocket. It's using that light to enhance other people's life. Or maybe it's a little puppy dog that needs some juice. Or maybe it's a plant. All living things interact. If there's life around you, and there always is, it's going to be moving, and you our privilege and our uh, joy is to reach those who are having struggle, who are struggling with the uh, life process for them. I had this wonderful friend and patient who moved into uh, dementia, and so he was, you know, he couldn't keep on going by himself and we got him a really nice home that he was staying in and and uh, but it was his own room and 
he just he was there and one day i took him a little plant and i said to him now james this is your plant and see it 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 needs to be taken care of it needs to have water and it needs to sit in the sunshine you know i explained to him and so he, i didn't know whether he was taking it or not but he he was sitting there listening but when i came in to see him a week later he met me at the door and he said come in come in magic there's magic here and i said oh really and he took me he said see this box and we went over to the wall where the uh, air conditioning box was and he said see when i push this button this everything gets hot and my plant doesn't like it it gets sad so I then can come back, though, and I can push this button and everything gets cold and the plant likes that. So it's magic. He said, it's a box. It's just got two buttons. And, you know, and he's going on. All of a sudden, life's movement and activity and everything activated something in him which had been dwindling and kind of getting less juicy as time went on but that little plant when he saw that and got the connection of what was happening it relit the the light within himself so that at least he had that i was so happy <laughs> Spirit guides, I feel like we always have a few around us. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a matter of tapping into them. Uh, what I do tell people is if they do do work with spirit guides, um, to, to remind them they all don't look like Gandalf. Not everybody's 150 years old in a white robe, mm -hmm. <laughs> big, you know, um, beard and whatnot. <laughs> but it's funny because people I just do, got that. <laughs> right? <laughs> Late to the game. Yeah, it's okay. Um, uh, but they will help us. And, and it's interesting is when I do go into guides with people, it ends up being very relevant and they're all so different. Um, you know, some people I'll see, they have a health guide and that can be, you know, mm -hmm. a tall African-American man, in, you know, who passed in his sixties, that was a doctor. Um, you could have, a you know, a, a child guide that's more for your playfulness, um, or, you know, I had somebody come through that was genuinely a teacher and it turned out the person wanted to be a teacher and it was like they had a teacher mentor, you know, and every once in a while I'll see an animal. It's very rare, but occasionally mm -hmm. I'll see an animal as a spirit animal and I'll get spirit animals for people sometimes. I've never looked a single one up. I just trust what I, mm -hmm. what I get. And people always tell me it makes sense. I got a rhino for somebody once in the email. I'm like, it made sense. I was like, that is badass. Interesting. <laughs> like, I thought I lost my mind on that one. But I always tell people it's always the craziest stuff I say that ends up, you know, making the most sense. Um, but they're around, but I know that, you know, there's one or two that'll stay with you, uh, forever. Uh, and then there's other ones that'll cycle through that can be there for, uh, anywhere from a few months to a few years, depending on, on what you need. It's just a matter of tapping into them. And from my understanding, it's never somebody you actually knew. And I know spirit guides can be tricky for people because they're hard to validate, mm -hmm. you know, cause it's not like your loved one, you know, um, you know, coming through, uh, but they're, they're there to help and to, and to, kind of channel yourself when you need help in those those areas is my understanding. So how do we tap into that? Because a lot of my clients that 
listen and who come to me, they want to get in touch with their spirit guides. They So like you, I'm the same way. Like I want validation. And that's mm-hmm. what I loved about my reading with you is I am looking for, I I'm have upset. that, cl- yeah, I have that clinical mindset. And then I also have the very spiritual mindset, but I want that validation. And so when I remember when I first started having my spiritual awakening, I'm like, appear before me. I want to see you. I want to know yeah. your name. And it just doesn't work like that for me. So how do people tap into connecting more with their guides, connecting more with their spirituality. Where do they start with that? Meditation is really key to everything. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't meditate at all anymore um, just because – I mean, I'll have a little one in the morning, but it's just I've been doing this for so long. It's like brushing my teeth, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, But being consistent with meditation uh, is really, really helpful, and that's what I did for a long time, you know, maybe it was like three times a week for 20 minutes or whatever. You don't need to go crazy with it. You know, I've had – students come in who are like, I meditate three hours every day. I'm like, why would you do that? That's Mm -hmm. a waste of your day. Mm -hmm. You're not going to accomplish anything with that, you know, but making time for, you know, your loved ones or guides or, you know, your higher self and being consistent with it. It's like, if you can do, you know, every Monday morning at 8 a.m., you try to stay consistent with that because you're building energy in that space. Um, And you do ask them to come forward. And, you know, I always tell people, trust your first gut feeling. Um, And the other thing is, if, if you keep seeing the same person over and over again, and they can come in all shapes and forms, you know, um, men, women, old, young, every nationality, every religion, whatnot. Um, if you can't change how they look, that's a real guide. If you can me- mess with them and like, you know, put a hat on them, turn them purple, you know, make them older, make them younger, that's when you're, that's your imagination and your ego getting in there. Okay. And so you have to wash that out. And the the thing to understand is when we get in the meditations, there's no right or wrong way to do it. My best ones are actually running and I would put the same playlist on over and over again because then it wouldn't distract me, but it got me in a different space. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, some people need to do a guided meditation. Some people need to be quiet, you know, music. There's no wrong way. It's whatever works for you. And just to know that your your mind will never be completely quiet. So if you have something come in, let it come in for a second and let it go. Okay. You know, and... Uh, and it's literally just about being patient, asking them to come forward, and they will. And then I always tell people, trust the first name you get. It's going to be correct. You know, the problem is that everybody second guesses themselves. And the other thing is it takes time. We are such in a world of immediate gratification. And the oh, reason yeah. why there's not a lot of good psychic mediums out there, because everybody wants everything overnight. Okay, I meditated three times. Why am I not a famous medium? Like everyone's <laughs> got the wrong like intentions and mm-hmm. not approaching it. It's a, it's a lot of work and it's dedication. And when you do that and you're – you're patient, that's when it comes. I always tell people the biggest things happen in the quietest of times. Mm-hmm. Like if you do a meditation for three months and nothing happens, wait, it will get there. That's when they're trying to weed you out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden you'll have that breakthrough. Now, that being said, not everybody can connect spiritually that way. That's just the truth. Some people just aren't aren't built to be able uh, to get there that I've seen. Cause I've seen people, some people have tried for years and I think maybe some people just don't have that affinity to be able to connect with guides, quite honestly, just like I would love to do certain sports, you know, but I'm mm-hmm. never going to be able to do them. Even though most people would be able to do them. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like when the soul is speaking to you, the soul has a very clear short answer to anything it's going to speak on. When the mind is speaking to you, it chatters. You notice this about anything, right? It takes your soul 0.1 seconds to decide because it already has a decision in front of you. Do you love him or not? Do you love her or not? It's a yes or no. It's a yes or no. 
right? But what happens is when the mind comes in, the mind starts to go into pros and cons. If you ever find yourself going through a pros and cons list and going back and forth and weighing, you're following your mind. But if you find yourself going, I don't know why, I just kind of want to do this. And that first impulse that comes is usually the soul. In fact, I say this way, the soul speaks first, the mind tries to justify. That's generally how that works. The soul communicates, it's there. You either listen to it or you don't. And the mind is what tries to justify. And that the reason that's actually a, a problem when it comes to manifestation is when you are trying to manifest, right? You are trying to jump quantum timelines and you're trying to change your reality and take an action that you've probably never taken before, right? You're trying to create a life and a vision or something in your life that is not based on the regular things you've been taught and the regular ways you've been taught to perceive life. As a result of that, your soul is going to communicate to try to help you jump. Your mind, because it's based on past principles and the same thinking that has gotten you where you are, it can't see the same thing your soul can see. So it's fundamentally important that when you're trying to manifest, you listen to the soul and that first voice that says go or don't go versus the mind that tries to create pros and cons because the mind is only made up of the things that were installed throughout your life that have gotten you exactly where you are. And in the first place, you're trying to jump from where you are into something else. And the final thing on this is... The reason why a lot of people tr struggle to manifest is they don't have confidence in the ability to manifest and they're trying to manifest things that are way too big, way too fast. It's a muscle. You have a spiritual muscle, just like you have a physical muscle, right? You go to the gym, you work out over time. You don't just start lifting three plates on a bench press, right? Or three plates. In the you start a little bit small and you grow into that. It's the same thing with your emotional body. You don't start just trying to control all your emotions at once. You first start by taking a few breaths to calm down and create separation between you and whatever's going on. Amazing. It's the same thing with your spiritual muscle. I've gotten to a point now, the fastest I've gotten a manifestation was 30 seconds. Where it literally went from that to that. It was like, and I saw it and I went, whoa, that's amazing, right? So, but it took me time to get there. And if you're trying to manifest something big, I say this to all my clients. First thing I will start you on is let's manifest a croissant or a free coffee. And let's just start with that. Because when you start to see it manifest, you start to really connect the dots and you go from believing to knowing that you can manifest. And the energy of knowing is that energy of certainty, which now allows you to pull and extrapolate that same approach into bigger things in your life, right? So you always want to go from believing into knowing. And I really say it starts small, manifest a croissant put it in your mind for the next seven days and you'll be surprised when it pops up or manifest a hug and you'll be surprised when it pops up and do that five, five to seven times. And all of a sudden you realize, wait, something is actually a bit different here. And now go try to start manifesting things that are a little bit bigger. If you had to narrow down, like, is there a powerful, powerful house or like a house that's more powerful than the other ones? Or are they all equal and just different? Well, there's angular houses. You're asking a very technical question. I don't think that it's more or less powerful. There are definitely indicators that suggest a career like you, double Capricorn, a career-oriented personality. Duh. If you see double Capricorn, you stop the bus and you go, okay, let's get the rules. Let's get the money. Let's get the nice things. We're going for a really nice trip. If you see double cancer, you're like, no, I'm not going out of the house. I want to stay home. I want to cuddle and I want to play with the puppy. So totally <laughs> different personality type built in. It's not so much the houses, although... The angles are very significant to, a, to an astrologer. It's more the indicators that say, what's the reason this person came to earth? What's the purpose? What's the lessons? What is the nature of their karma? All that's answered. It's so crazy that astrology has been left behind when it's like the shortcut. 
I, it puzzles me that it's just now resurfacing when the truth is it never left, by the way. It has been sustained. The same symbols, the hieroglyphics are 4,000 years old. Wow. wow. How could that be? Unless it was a really tried system that just like Jesus, his name lives with us or Buddha over thousands of years because it's the truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Astrology is we true. Can, we can maybe thank TikTok for that. A lot, of, a lot of things came up on TikTok now that are resurfacing. So in terms of life purpose, if somebody wanted to get an idea of what they're supposed to be doing or get an idea of what road to take, how does astrology help them figure that out? Where do they well, look for that? In our school, I have a school. It's a six-week program. It happens twice a year. We only have a, a, a curriculum that starts in September and in January. And one of the main classes in level one is Saturn, which is very strong in your chart. Saturn describes your life purpose. It's the question you just asked. And it's mm-hmm. to me, it's the only question to ask. Like, what are you doing here? Why would anyone come down to a planet that is violent, that has the word war? That word doesn't even make sense to me. That has children being abused, that has starvation, that has poverty, that has slaves. Like, excuse me, um, I was just kidding. I, I, I don't really think I want to be here. Oopsie. So then <clears throat> once I realized, oh, no, this is not a, it's a one-way ticket. Like, you come here and you can't go home. So now this is home. Update. So now what am I doing here? Someone explain to me, please. Was there a reason? Oh, that would be Saturn. That will give me my intention, my function, and most important, my timing. Because in astrology, timing is everything. So at 28 to 30, there's not a person on this planet that didn't go through what's called Saturn return. And at that moment, everything changes. There is no way you're going to be the same person. So let's just look at yours. You have Saturn in Scorpio, and yours was in uh, 2014. What happened to you in 2014? <laughs> oh, wow. So um, I worked in a federal prison. I resigned because it was a hellhole. Um, I sold my house. Um, I got divorced <laughs> and I bought a new house and my life took a complete change. So my point, every single human, and whenever I teach, I do that same question. <clears throat> every single person between the ages of 28 and 31, there's a range. There will be a radical departure from where you came. You will leave your job. You'll leave your marriage. You'll get married. You'll have a kid. The kid will die. The kid will live. There's a million trillion stories. All that is to say, timing is everything. And there is a divine instrument called Saturn that comes in to teach us what is the next time I should be forewarned to know. Like I am right now in a Saturn cycle in my life. And I, you know, part of me like looks out the door in the front and goes, "Uh uh-oh, I know they're coming. And sure enough, I get a book deal and then I get a TV show and then I get a, like it all happened exactly as I expected. I didn't know what would happen, but these are the ways that life shows up. And once you know that, said that 75,000 year old woman, once you learn the timing, all of a sudden the rhythms become so smooth and soft and you're prepared and you're not shocked and you take care of yourself and you know when to buy the house and sell the house. So have a baby, not have a baby. These are the conversations that, astrology address. How do you think the media has affected what's happening? Is the media portraying this correctly or is there propaganda happening? Oh, I think the propaganda is bonkers, frankly. (laughs) I've been reading these New York Times headlines that are just so upsetting and so biased um, about, for example, Israel um, allowing people in Gaza to flee as if that is a benevolent 
action on Israel's part of, oh, we're letting them run away as we bomb and shoot them and exile them from their historic homeland. How generous are we? Um, so even, even the headlines have been horrifically biased. But I think the language, too, that's being used, even in calling it the Israel-Hamas war, which almost all sort of North American news outlets have adopted this title for, for the genocide that's going on right now is Israel-Hamas war, does so many things simultaneously. One, it creates the false equivalence that it's Israel against Hamas, as opposed to that it's Israel carpet bombing Palestinian civilians. And it puts all Palestinians under the umbrella of Hamas. And it suggests that Israel's violence has been directed against Hamas, which is not true. I think point like less than half of 1% of the deaths that Israel has caused, less than half of 1% of the people that Israel has killed in Palestine have been Hamas operatives. The vast majority of brutality and violence has been directed against Palestinian civilians. And then you call it a war, which again implies some equivalent force when Israel can outarm and out brutalize Palestine a thousand times over. They have tanks and weaponry that Palestinians cannot possibly access. And so framing this thing as a war when the violence really since after October 7th has been unidirectional is absurd. There isn't bidirectional violence happening. There's one group that is bombing civilians and committing um, collective punishment against a civilian population that is sheltering, terrified with no means of retaliation, and that is fleeing their ancestral home with their hands up. That's not a war. And so even just the titling of what's going on is propagandist. And then you have what I think is a beautiful, compassionate, empathetic form of cognitive resistance from the younger generation in the United States who are willing to hear the Palestinian journalists on the ground and listen to the suffering of Palestinian civilians and hold space and internalize their pain and show them empathy and compassion, primarily on TikTok, which is one of the platforms that has not as efficiently silenced pro-Palestine voices as, say, for example, Facebook and Instagram. And so Didn't your TikTok get shut down? It did. And then it got brought back. I still don't really know how it got brought back, but it did, which I'm grateful for. Um, so so they're, they're still silencing people, just not as efficiently as, as Facebook or Instagram. Um, and I am very grateful that they brought my, my TikTok back. I'm, it's, it's a little strange to hold these two things. Um, and then the, the mainstream news media in North America is saying, Oh, is, is the TikTok algorithm pro-Palestine? Does this have something to do with some sinister social media actor as opposed to just recognizing that younger people are on TikTok, that younger people on TikTok are hearing the boots on the ground stories from Gazan and Palestinian civilians who are being brutalized and violated, that we are actually listening and opening our hearts to those narratives of pain and that we are pro-Palestine. And so instead of us having this learning moment where we come to a more humanitarian love ethic in support of Palestine, it must be that the algorithm is manipulating us. And that take on TikTok is in and of itself propaganda. So yeah, I think your concerns about whether propaganda is being spread are so, so valid. And it's horrifying to me to see people who I think of as critical thinkers and thought leaders wholesale accept the representation of Palestine that is being disseminated by Western news media. It's devastating. Does the narcissist mom 
love? Do they love their kids? Is their love there for them? Okay. I just got chills. I, I literally have chills, but I, I, this question gives me like such like, I know. Okay. So here's what I say. A narcissistic – and I'm not talking about features. I'm not talking about difficult or toxic. I'm talking about true narcissistic personality disorder. Narcissists are not able to love and reciprocate love and unconditional love in the way that non-narcissists are, period. They love – and I'm doing quote air quote. They love based on – whether or not they can get their needs met in any given situation. So if you meet their needs, if you give them the supply that they need, they'll love you in whatever that looks like for them. If you're not willing to be the supply source for them, if you're setting boundaries, because that love is conditional, well, then they're not going to love you. They're going to withhold their love and their attention, their affection. It's very, as you said, transactional. Um, it is very much based solely on which makes them the narcissist, what they can get in any given situation. Um, it is a very difficult pill to swallow. It is so lonely. That's got to be so it's lonely. They won't go there though. That's the whole point of the narcissist is they won't ever access that because the, that's too, it's too, um, that's too much of a wound. That's too deep of a wound. They won't go there. So they will put on this, this exterior, which is the personality disorder to make sure that that never happens. They will hurt you before you hurt them. They will cut you off before you can cut them off. They will be in charge of the dynamic of the relationship of what they choose to give you. Um, I think that they, you know, and this is why when in, in romantic relationships, when you hear that, you know, the narcissist discarded you and they're done with you. And next thing you know, you hear two months later, they're engaged in living with the person. Like, well, did they ever love me? And they feel like, was any of that real? They're not capable of that unconditional love. It's not the same. It's based on supply. It's based on what they can get. It's based on what how, it's based on control. The more they can control you, the more they can control your emotions and the situation, you know, they get more supply from that. You know, surrender is a letting go of control, or I should say the illusion that we are in control in the mm -hmm. first place. Surrender is when we stop trying to force and control and manipulate life to fit our limited idea of what we think it should be. Surrender is when we let go of who we think we should be and how we think life should be from the lens of our ego when you take the limitations off of life and you're open and you're available to life, the highest unfolding of life. And that's what my mother showed me. That is very beautiful. And I just want to first thank you for um, sharing that vulnerability because first of all, your, your mom sounds like a beautiful woman and to have that amount of self-awareness is very rare. And it's very evident that you have that as well. One thing that I wrote down while you were talking is the ego. I think a lot of us hold on to the ego so much and really don't allow ourselves to be our most authentic self, to surrender to be our most authentic self. And really, I don't feel like 
people are to blame because we live in a society that is for profit. The more things that you have, you'll be happy. You get the trophy wife, you'll be happy. You get the fancy car, you'll be happy. You get the status, you get the likes, you get the comments, you'll be happy. But in reality, it's that ego that I feel that keeps us trapped. Trapped. I would love to hear your thoughts on how does somebody let go of the ego? How do we surrender? How do we get connected with our most authentic self? Because a lot of society is keeping us trapped to not do that. Yeah. First, I'll say ego is not the enemy. And ego is not really a problem. It's our relationship with the ego that is an issue. And ego is not good or bad. It's our relationship with ego that is the issue, not ego itself. And our sense of how identified we are with ego in the human 3D experience called life, everybody has an ego. Every human has an ego. Otherwise, you would call somebody's name and they wouldn't even respond if they didn't have an ego. So the fact that they say True. yes, that's ego. And that's not an issue. It's just the degree to which we're identified with it. And, and so I think when we understand that, it shifts our relationship with the ego. And when you understand the nature of something and you shift your relationship with it, 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 it frees you up to relate to it in a whole different way and changes your relationship with life in and of itself. And so ego is not a thing. We often relate to ego like a thing, like here's my phone, you know, mm -hmm. here's my pet chihuahua. And here's my ego. <laughs> it's right. like, no, ego is not a thing. The more you relate to ego as a thing and try to annihilate it, get rid of it, make it a problem, the stronger it gets. Ego is a process. It is a process of identification, identifying as me, name, body, form, religion, experience, status, fame, you know, past experiences, trauma. It's the identification that is the ego, not ego itself, like a bicycle is a thing. Pedaling is a process. Identification and ego is a process of identification based on who we think we are mistakenly that's reinforced by life. Mm -hmm. And so for the ego, yes, letting go and surrender is scary because the degree to, and so resistance is natural for the ego because the ego's job is to reinforce its existence. I, I, I am me. I am here. I exist. And the ego's job is to protect you from getting hurt like you were hurt when you mm -hmm. were young. So the yes. ego is often a conditioned pattern response to certain things and experiences that happen when you were young, painful experiences, challenging. And, and ego is often a coping defense mechanism that gets conditioned into us as an adaptive pattern that we hold on to that we go through life you know, imprisoned by, not necessarily a static thing. And so the ego's job is to protect you from getting hurt like you were hurt when you were young. And so when you talk about letting go and when you talk about surrender, it sounds great and we understand, okay, surrender. Ooh. But when we say surrender, resistance kicks in. Mm -hmm. Ego kicks in with good intention because ego, what we mistakenly perceive ourselves to be, is afraid that if I surrender and let go, who the hell will I be? Will I exist? Will I be safe? Maybe I'll feel helpless like I felt when I was five, when mom and dad weren't around. So it kicks yeah. in as a protective mechanism. When we understand that we don't have to fight ego and judge ego and, and destroy ego, we can change our relationship with it, understanding the nature and intention of it, and learn to relate to it with love. 
and relate to it with understanding and relate to relate to it with non-resistance, relate to it with compassion. Because when we can hold ego and just love it, there's no resistance. Sometimes true surrender is not trying to make yourself surrender. Sometimes true surrender is to acknowledge the resistance and embrace and love yourself through the resistance, knowing that the, underneath the resistance is fear. So the degree to which we are identified with our sense of self as this mind-body mechanism, ego, is often the degree to which ego will resist because for the ego, surrender feels like a death, mm -hmm. a death of who we thought we were. So it's like, hell no, resistance, yes. resistance, resistance. We do this, we create drama, we sabotage, we, you know, yep. whatever it is to resist because it's scary mm -hmm. when we understand that, oh, I'm not the ego. That already shifts your relationship so that you know that whatever beliefs and thoughts and ideas and paradigms and identities about yourself, whatever you let go of, that's not you. So the real you isn't dying. It's just the illusion mm -hmm. of what you are that's dying. So when you understand that, it's like, oh, this belief isn't me. Oh, I can let that go. Then I'm still me. I am still what I am without this belief and this idea and this identity. And so when you understand that, then you can hold yourself, observe and hold yourself with love and compassion even in the resistance. And then ego can kind of relax and let go and surrender can begin to happen. And so sometimes surrender is embracing whatever is arising and wherever you're at, even the resistance in the moment, because that's a deeper surrender, you know? And, and so it's just ego that resists, but ego, when you understand the nature of ego, it shifts your entire way of relating. What I will say is, is also, look, when we're born, we're born free as children. We are these infinite beings. As children, surrender is our natural state. A child will jump on the table naked and, and, and just, it doesn't care what, it, how do I look like on Instagram? Do I have cellulite? What, it, it, we're just being free, That's no right. self-consciousness. A child will, will, will jump on a table and sing. Doesn't care if it doesn't sound like Bruno Mars. It's just being whatever <laughs> it's being, you know? It's like, ah, until we're taught, hey, shut up. You can't sing, you sound terrible. Now we start developing self-consciousness. So with these free beings, Surrender is natural for what we are. We're open-hearted. We're, we're curious about life. We're not projecting into the future. We hit our head. We cry. We're over it. We're not thinking about that experience four weeks from now. I hit my head four weeks ago. Was, we're just purely being in the moment, surrendered. So what happens? I think it's helpful for people to understand what happens. We incarnate into this human experience. We meet our parents. They're just doing, you know, God bless them. They're just doing the best that they know how to do based on their childhood and their upbringing and their parents. So now we're born into a preset pattern of conditioning. And maybe dad is crazy. Maybe mom is an alcoholic. Maybe they're fighting all the time. Maybe there's abuse, pain, trauma, mental, emotional, sexual abuse. Maybe dysfunction or patterns in, 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 in the family system. Maybe they're great people, but they just did not know how to meet our emotional needs. And that was painful. And so two things happen where ego starts getting created. The first thing is we learn unconsciously all sorts of strategies to shut down, disconnect, not feel. Shut down, disconnect, not feel. Shut down, disconnect, not feel. Suppress, 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 suppress. Layers and layers and layers and layers of unfelt, unprocessed feeling covers up our true light. Then we erect walls around our heart as a survival defense mechanism to keep ourselves safe that becomes a, a solidified way of being, of controlling our environment and feeling so that we can be safe, control, control, control. Then we learn a way of being. Well, who do I need to be 
in the world to get love from mom and dad? Who do I need to be to fit in? Who do I need to be to, to, to get love, validation and approval? So mm-hmm. we develop a role. We develop a mask. We develop a persona of who we think we need to be in order to get love, validation and approval. And we become the, we contort ourselves into becoming this shape, becoming this conditioned pattern, becoming this version of ourselves, of who we think we need to be to be loved and fit into the world and be safe. Now we become this person and we say that the version of ourselves that we've become is me. No, this is just who I am. I'm just this way. I'm just nice. I'm just shy. I'm just over-responsible. I'm just independent. I'm just... But the thing is, we don't realize that who we've learned to become is a conditioned pattern and the degree to which we identify with that is ego. Mm. But we're not. That's just conditioning. And conditioning is not who you are. Ego is not who you are. The degree to which we're conditioned is the degree to which we're not free. And the degree Mm. to which we're conditioned is the degree to which we're living our past projected into our future over and over again. And so ego doesn't want to change. For good intention. Like ego doesn't want to change. Ego wants everyone else to change. So we're afraid to question our beliefs, question who we are, reinvent mm-hmm. ourselves because like if I change and I let go of this way of being, I might get hurt again. I don't want to get hurt again. Resistance, resistance, resistance. It's self-protection. That's why I say when you can meet your resistance, ego, resistance with love and hold it. When you can surrender and hold your resistance with compassion, and understanding and grace, surrender can begin to happen because now there's no resistance, there's no fight, and then layers can peel away. Then you can start questioning, who am I in a safe space? What do I believe? It's who I am, who I really am, which can be scary because now we're questioning our very sense of self, which we've built up to function and survive. And then we can start questioning, and then we can start looking at, too, courageously, what lies am I telling myself? Mm-hmm. What li- about who I am, about what I feel? What lies am I telling myself? We've been conditioned to lie for the reasons I've just explained. What lies am I telling myself? What am I pretending to not know? To me, there is no transformation without truth. So if people say, well, I want to start surrendering. I want to start breaking through. Just look at the lies you're telling yourself and start getting <laughs> honest. Start getting real. There is no transformation without truth. You can't meditate your way there. You can't plant medicine your way there. You can't pray your way there. You can't, you know, levitate your way there. You got to tell the truth. That's right. And if we start with the truth, the truth will set you free. And many of the problems and issues that we go to God about, God, please help me, will resolve if we just start telling ourselves the truth. But it's often scary because we're afraid of the consequence of what will happen. If I tell the truth, we stay in relationships that we know are not aligned. We work jobs that we hate. We say yes when we mean no and betray ourselves and wonder why we feel pain in our hearts. Pain is a feedback mechanism that we are not in alignment with something. When you feel pain, pain is giving you feedback that you're off in some way. And because we're afraid of the consequence, we often play this game of confusion. I don't, I don't really know what I want. I don't really know what my truth is. I don't really know what my purpose is. We know. There is a part of us that knows everything because at the deepest level, we are everything, the deepest level. And so take, I say, take the pressure off of yourself of having to take any action, take the pressure off. And if you just start with, okay, I I don't have to take action. Like I don't have to leave my relationship. I don't have to quit my job, but just start with the truth. That's the beginning of surrender. 
I hate my job. Scary. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. You don't have to leave, but I hate my job. I'm done pretending that I love it. I'm done BSing myself. I'm done kind of being using gratitude as a spiritual bypass. I hate my job. Feel that. That starts a process inside. I am not in love with my wife anymore. Scary. What would this mean? You don't have to leave, but just allow a process to start inside as you start getting in touch with the truth. And that likely as you start telling the truth, you will feel or get in touch with the pain that's been there. The pain is a gift. The pain is a blessing if you're willing to pay attention to the message of the pain. And that's the key. Mm. Then you can use the pain to course correct. You know, but the challenge is we distract ourselves. We drink it away, sex it away, drug it away, shop it away, social media away, meditate it away even so that we don't have to feel the pain that's there rather than just saying, I feel pain. What is this pain telling me? And what do I need to feel that I haven't felt? Or what do I need to feel that I'm denying? What do I need to face so that I can shift and release and let this go? Mm. 